0: Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, a podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge with Professor Ali Ansari and me, Suzanne Rain. Today we're talking about the idea of authoritarian resilience and um, this is Ali and me talking together, only us, and it's prompted by some thinking that Ali's been doing about how ideas impact our understanding of the world, and in particular, the notion of authoritarian resilience. So why do authoritarian states resist attempts to change the government in in whatever way? Ali is going to explain more about it, because this is his idea. Come on, Ali.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. So I've been really intrigued and uh, fascinated, really, about the way in which uh, scholarly ideas, often emanating from particular disciplines, if I may say so, impact on the way in which we shape policy and the way in which, you know, scholars like to sort of categorize, you know, tidy up sort of uh, historical processes in order to sort of develop general theories about the way in which the world develops. And the current one, which seems to be very, very dominant in various thinking, is the idea of authority and resilience. And why states, particularly those states in the post-Soviet Union, or, you know, in um, the Middle East, Latin America, and other places, why they have resisted the temptation, in a sense, to move towards democracy. And I think that's actually a key indicator of how the debate is shaped and how the debate is formed. And that is that authority and resilience itself is actually founded on a previous paradigm, a previous debate that emerged in the 1990s, following the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was the idea of the third wave. And those of us who are sadly old enough will remember that post Huntington and Fukuyama and others, there was this notion after the fall of the Berlin Wall that we were witnessing the third wave of democratization around the world and that we would see this emerging in, in all these post-Soviet states and Latin America and others. And of course, it hasn't happened, you know, and post-Arab Spring, the Green Movement in Iran, of course, recently in Iran with the uprising we saw at the end of last year, which is still sort of simmering away. uh, People have sort of said, ah, but this now shows actually the current paradigm, the the model that we must all sort of stick to really is this notion of authority and resilience. And I find that quite interesting because it sort of dominates the way in which people think about the world around them. But it's also in a curious sort of way, quite an internal academic debate. And this is what I wanted to sort of flesh out it's basically a debate founded on a rejection of a previous paradigm, i.e. the third wave, which, I mean, at the time when I was writing my first books on Iran, you know, I was very much embedded within that sort of notion of of the third wave. But even then, you know, a number of us were quite skeptical about this idea that, you know, all these countries were suddenly going to turn into, you know, democracies of one sort or another. So in a sense, it's a sort of a series of debates within academia, which sort of, you know bounce off each other with perhaps not as much i know connection to what's going on on the ground as we would like to see and in some ways it does tend to the more and more these sort of theories become developed and they become general theories of course I mean that's the idea they don't pertain to single countries or groups of countries they actually become general theories that apply worldwide. The more broader they get, the less depth they have actually, and the less attached in a sense they are to you know, the reality on the ground. So, you know, if you're talking about democratization in the first instance, it tends to ignore certain particularities, often historical particularities of particular countries, their cultural distinctions, because it wants to paint a broad picture. And then authoritarian resilience, of course, is basically an argument to say, well, why haven't they democratized, assuming that that original theory was correct? I mean, that's... (laughs) So, you know <laughs> which, so, so that, that, that 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 it's a very peculiarly ivory tower debate in my view
0: so we're going to we are now going to pick up the peculiar ivory tower debate and make a podcast about it thus proving how ridiculous we all are <laughs> but of course at the same time not because i think you and i ali both come from the place where we say actually this is all very well in theory but the situation on the ground is always much more complicated than that and that relationship between the academic theory and the practice obviously is something And I I was a practitioner for nearly a quarter of a century and for me it's very difficult to engage with a lot of the theory because it bears, I'm sorry to say, hardly any relation to the practice. And actually, if there's one mission that I have, it's to try and put a little bit more practice into the academic theory. Because what's the point of teaching something that is so abstract that it's not preparing people in some way for the real world or helping the policymakers, which is, mm. which is I suppose has to be the objective, isn't it?
1: I mean, I think the attraction of these theories, of course, is that they tend to be an explanation, a sort of a, a global explanation, and they read well. I mean, that this is the thing. I mean, they have an attraction for students in particular because they offer a sort of a complete solution. And to my mind, one of the best examples of this, by the way, and a good way in which to sort of enter this, to you know, understand this debate, was Perry Anderson's Lineages of the Absolutist State, which is sort of a Marxist reading of the development of the modern state in Europe. Extremely popular, well-received in many ways, seen as an attempt to provide a sort of a Marxist history. But of course, when historians get to grips with it, they sort of pick holes in it, you know, and they sort of say, well, you know, it's okay in theory, basically. But in practice, if you look at the particular development of France or the Holy Roman Empire or Britain or others, you know, there are particularities and differences which don't just fit this general model. But Perry Anderson, to my mind, represents, you know, the the good extreme of this tendency, this idea of providing a sort of a general model. Some of these other ideas, I think, are much, much less resilient in themselves, excuse the pun. But what they do is they tend to sort of construct a theory based on what they consider to be data. And and one of my criticisms, of course, of this is that the data they use is often not particularly reliable and is not critiqued enough because it's so broad. Because it's so broad and it's covering such a broad ground, you obviously can't be an expert on everything. So you're drawing on a lot of secondary evidence, secondary source evidence to try and sort of populate your, quote, theory. And for those who can't see me, I'm putting inverted commas up there. And, you know, often you're having to... How should we say, curate the evidence in such a way that those bits that don't fit your theory are are very conveniently sort of relegated to the margins and ignored. And you only take in the evidence that fits your theory. And automatically, that's a problem. I mean, as you'll, you you know, if you're going around looking at the practicalities of policy in particular areas, it's no good if someone says to you, well, you know, my theory is, is a very powerful theory, but it doesn't apply to your case because your case doesn't fit my theory. And the late, great Fred Halliday said, uh, well, and he's absolutely right on his, you know, he, he did a sort of an essay on this, basically saying is, because, you know, one of the things is about theories of revolution, of course, are very popular. He says, no sooner was a theory of revolution formulated by academics or by revolutionaries and accepted than events jumped in to correct it. So basically, you know, what I find also about these sort of grand paradigms is they're very descriptive. They're not predicting anything. They're describing what's happening on the ground now as they think it to be. But the minute things change, or the minute something happens, as you know, which can be very contingent on particular things, suddenly the theory has to be reformed and rethought. But I will say this, these theories, um, these sort of general theories in these paradigms, are quite resistant to modification, I have to say. It takes a long time for reality to catch up with them, in a sense. I mean, and for these, that they're, 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 I think they're like almost like theoretical super tankers, and they shape the way. I think they have a much, much more powerful influence on the way we think about uh, the world. I, 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 you know, we lose a certain degree of intellectual agility. I think.
0: So I'm going to I'm going to challenge you on a on a question of mm. precision there, Ali. Sorry. Sure. Because you say they shape the way we think about the world, and mm. the question is, who is we? And I just so the only theory that I can buy into at all is the complex adaptive systems thinking when you're talking about a state and yeah. structures and people and all the different things that impact on it. And, and the complex adaptive system thing, basically, and it's a really, really simple definition of this, but essentially you have multi, you know, many, many, many agents in a system which are all components of the system and they all interact and connect with each other in completely unpredictable and unplanned ways. So, for example, air and water molecules in a weather system and plants and animals in an ecosystem and humans, so individuals and economies and structures and governments in a state system. And for me, I mean, Ali, you'll be able to sort of empathise with this, but if you've been in a hot and dusty country Mm. as the sun is setting, and if it's a muslim country then the muezzin is starting to cry and there's a demonstration on the streets there's riots there's people with batons that you know there's this sort of hum of the chanting you know that that doesn't fit into any theory anything could happen there's there's violence and darkness and people are afraid and people are brave and and whether the outcome of that is a change in a political system or or just more suppression it completely depends on on what might happen on that day but but decisions multiple different decisions taken by different people some in authority some not in authority you know and 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 how you try then and interpret I mean it seems to me a complete <laughs> it seems to me very odd that we would be sitting somewhere else trying to put that into into any kind of theory, except to say that for an indefinable reasons there are moments when a series of events leads to a change and then there are other moments when for completely indefinable reasons a series of events doesn't lead to a change. But am I just being a negator? No, I mean I, th- I think you're
1: absolutely right that these things are contingent and that they're also quite volatile and you know they depend on very particular issues on the ground. Now, the problem with that for an academic sort of study is it's not very helpful. Because you can't build you can't build a theory around it. Do you see what I mean? I mean, it, it yes. basically what you're basically saying is things can be really up in the air, and there are black swan events, or there are other things that we simply can't predict. I mean, how things will react. I mean, my my point is is that, and I think what you're saying here is that human behavior is not something that you can quantify by through some scientific theorem. And my my worry is is, is that you know, my my interest, shall we say, let's not get to worry, is that in some elements of, you know, particularly American political science, the emphasis on the science is too strong, even in international relations. So basically, what they do is they try and emphasize a very sort of mechanistic, um, almost Newtonian approach to human behavior, which, you know, most people know, even if you're apply, you know, e- economists know this, of course, I mean, there's a huge debate in economics, you know, how do people react? I mean, the irrational element in all this makes it very difficult for academics who want to sort of basically order things, you know, (laughs) um, uh, to be able to provide a sound analysis. Now, of course, there is a midway in this. I mean, in your, let's take your example of being at a dusty, you know, (laughs) road in some sort of um, obscure country, whatever. I mean, obviously, if you know something about the culture, the political culture, the history and whatever of the country in question, you're better placed to make an assessment. But, you know, my argument, and my argument has been for quite a long time, really, that we all need a healthy dose of humility when we're looking at this sort of stuff. Because let's be honest, I mean, we would be pretty useless at predicting political upheaval. You know, we have been pretty useless.
0: Can we talk about Iran, Ali? Because yeah. this is your example. Well, this is you- my
1: example. Yeah. Let's take Iran over the last hundred years. I mean, the two major revolutions in Iran, 1906 and 1979, neither of which were predicted. I mean, this 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 is the thing. We we always, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, have been been very wise about it and said, "Ah, oh, well, you know, we should have looked at this. We should have looked at that." And we we you know, it was it was apparent it was going to happen. Actually, for what I find quite interesting is what were people on the ground saying. And of course, as you know, you and I know, and one of the themes of our podcasts in a way, when we're looking at things, is when you're looking from the ground up and you can't see over the horizon, you know, and your information is partial. What assessments do you make? And my argument with this is that actually there's been a tradition in Iran, and I'm sure with other countries too, a degree of complacency sets in, both among those who are the rulers, as well as those analysts who are facing it, who say, well, it's pretty much going to continue as normal. You know, that there is a sort of say, we're muddled on and this way. Now, the problem is, is the historical record doesn't show that. The historical record actually shows, as Nikki Keddy has argued before, that Iran is one of the most revolutionary countries in the Middle East, certainly in the 20th century. Now, it can't be that. And boring. You know what I mean? It can't be that. And, you know, nothing happens. There's got to be something there that, you know, a historian of Keddy's standing would say, well, actually, if you look at it, it's actually had turmoil after turmoil. And it often happens every, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, there's an uproar. Now, why is that? Why does that happen? And also, how do we understand that sort of historical inheritance and historical sort of narratives, if you will, in shaping that? The problem with, I think, many of the sort of the if I want to put it, you know, the the political science IR approaches. And and let me be very transparent here. I'm talking as a historian, and I'm very biased about my own discipline. But my point is, is that I think as historians, we are able to take a longer view. And so, you know, one of the things about authority and resilience, which I find quite interesting, not only is it something which is based on, founded on an, an earlier paradigm, so you have to see it within that context. But of course, authority and resilience is not arguing for authoritarian permanence. You know, and this is the thing. I mean, people often read into some of these ideas something that it isn't. It's simply saying that they may resist change for longer than we thought. And I think that's absolutely right on many ways. I mean, I don't disagree with some of these. I mean, I wrote, you know, when I wrote my own book on Iran, I put in there very explicitly the reasons why the Islamic Republic of Iran was able To basically resist change and to, and, you know, to be fungible, as people say, to sort of adapt, you know, the sort of complex dynamics that you have. On the other hand, you know, when you look at that development and you see how things change, and and this is another point I want to make actually is that some of these theories lack all historicity at all. By the way, it's almost as if, you know, things exist. In stasis from time immemorial to the present, as if, you know, from 1979 to the present, the Islamic Republic is a single political entity and has never changed. I mean, th- this historically is obviously completely untrue as well. I mean, you know, whereas Perry Anderson and the previous, you know, where I'm talking about Marxist readings, at least that's a theory of change, by the way. Some of these more modern ideas don't have any element of change built into them at all, which is, which as a historian, I find quite strange and difficult to comprehend. But, you know, if you look at the development of Iran, And by the way, we can talk about Russia too as another example. Yeah,
0: I was going to bring Russia in, but I'm going to let you finish.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, clearly things have changed. You know, the ability to adapt and to be agile and to reflect and to adjust the circumstance is becoming more and more difficult to do because of economic crisis, because of political crisis, but above all, in some ways, because of an ideological fossilization. They are simply unable to respond. So if you look recently in Iran, how has the regime responded to the demonstrations of the last year? Mm. One is that they've doubled down. They've tried to double down, even though they're not getting the response they want. OK, you know, women are still you know, refusing to wear the hijab in places, and quite a lot of them actually in many cases, but they're, they're doubling down. And then, of course, what do they do? They come out and they list 20 countries, 20, at least 20 countries who they think were mm. behind the uprising. You know, so it's a classic conspiracy theory. It's not our fault, Gov. It's someone else. It's Britain. It's America. It's France. It's the UAE. It's Saudi Arabia. I raised those two countries because obviously they're meant to be all chummy with the Saudis at the moment, but still they were responsible. You know, it's all sorts of countries who they think were responsible for this. And again, it's someone else's fault. And, you know, what does that tell us or tell me certainly is that they still are unable to learn you know, they still they. It, they can't exit that sort of that that narrative that they have of themselves, that they are they are being persecuted but and I they mean, are the victims.
0: That's also, though, a technique, isn't it? And it's the same technique that populist leaders anywhere would use, yes. yeah. which is essentially to corral your followers behind a narrative which blames it on the other. I mean, that's yeah. that's I mean, I'm, we're all. I'm a, I'm inserting a theory into a conversation about how unhelpful theories are, but but it seems to me that you have. In any form of government anywhere in the world, when challenged, or is in any negotiation, this yeah. is negotiating technique, isn't it? But you double down or you flex, and you you have to pick the moment to flex. And I, you, just when you were talking, then you reminded me of, or you made me think of, Pakistani politics, mm. which you might say have been the opposite of stable, uh, in that uh, you have the sort of yo yo between. Um, military takeover, civilian rule, military, ta- you know, coup, military government, whatever. And and the thinking is that when the civilian government essentially runs out of road through corruption, incompetence, whatever form of mal government it's been doing, then the army steps in again to put things in in the right order. But of course, that's their perspective. And yet, it's a country which has... I don't know. I mean it, it's not it's not good for the country but that that instability creates it's the sine curve thing isn't it so you have mm. you have constant instability which creates a sense of permanence which is might be permanent instability but it is simply the way it is and we were talking just about Russia just now two things I've been thinking about this week about Russia and one was I went to something the other day where we were discussing The failure on the West part to anticipate Russian economic resilience Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of the sanctions and all the various measures that have been imposed on Russia since it invaded Ukraine. This year, the Russian GDP is expected to grow. And it's now, let's see, it's it's costing Russia less than 3% of its GDP to wage war. So, you know, not that much. And it's been much better than we anticipated at building and using alternative pipelines, particularly for oil, less so for gas. And so then you think, well, what did we get wrong? Did we get the anticipation wrong or did we get the plan wrong? And of course, you're going to get the plan wrong if you get the anticipation wrong. And the anticipation is about understanding how Russia's economy actually works, what alternative options they have. So this comes back to the question of theory versus practice. So mm. understanding in advance how resilient the Russian economy was would have required a huge amount of specialist knowledge, which was then assembled all in one place, which was then funneled into policy advice, which then and, and that had to be really authoritative. Someone someone said, if you do this, the Russian economy will be resilient for the following reasons, and that had to be the voice that everybody listened to. And it's very difficult to make that the voice that everybody listens to because you're going to have 100 other voices saying, "I oh, know the sanctions are a brilliant idea. You just need to cut off this." And everybody's got their theory of what will work and what won't work. And the net result of it is that GDP of Russia is expected to grow this year because it turns out that their economy doesn't work quite the way we thought it did, and they've just. Found a whole load of ways around it, which, if you look back, mm. <laughs> then it was quite easy to write that theory in retrospect, isn't it?
1: Well, I'm glad you raised that because I think also allow me to make a distinction between two things. I mean, for our purposes, let's put a theory on one side, which is a sort of a particular idea about how things operate, which I think are, are fine and then the concept of the paradigm, because I think it's the paradigm that has affected us on Russia. And the example I want to take, basically, is the paradigm which, to my mind, has dominated, absolutely dominated foreign policy thinking in the West since 1970. And that is this paradigm of Nixon going to China. And the idea that if you play fair, and you're nice, and you hug authoritarian regimes close, they will eventually become like you. You know, they will turn to you. You will integrate them into this sort of global economy, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, for, for want of a better word, um, although obviously more the Chinese and the Russians. And clearly for many years now, and it, I think your example is a perfect example of the sort of time lag that occurs in, in thinking and its application. So I think for many years now, we've realized that it's not working. I mean, if you look at the practicalities, from Crimea to the Stripwell case in Salisbury, uh, I I mean, just basically to what Putin has been doing in terms of authoritarian consolidation in Russia, but also what the Chinese have been doing under Xi and others. You know, I mean, the thing is, is that it's quite clear that that dominant paradigm is flawed, or at least it needs some modification. I mean, let's say that, and I think that's what fed in, to be honest, to these ideas that, ah, well, you know we've tied them into our economic thing. So once we cut them off, it'll hurt them just as much as it hurts us. Actually, you know, what we've discovered is A, the values are somewhat different. They're willing to take more pain. B, you know, on a very simple level, of course, we were still buying quite a bit of, you know, Russian uh, hydrocarbons, uh, you know, for, for some time, you know, before people switch, but that we, we've been funding in some ways, Europe has been paying for a lot of gas and stuff until they began to switch. So, you know, obviously, there's a time lag with that, but that will feed into what uh, Russia's GDP figures, no doubt, look like. But I suppose it's the, the level of the theory that you're looking at, which is why I like this word paradigm, because I think the paradigm is a, is, is a dominant model within which other things sort of, like, uh, are, are sort of populated. And I think that's what shaped the way in which further misunderstandings were developed. I mean, th- there is also, I think, and I agree with you on this, I mean, I think we've developed an unhealthy fixation with sanctions as a policy tool.
0: Have to ask Jonathan Boss about that. We we'll have to get him on to talk about. Yeah, something. yeah,
1: absolutely. Because I mean, it's 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 very interesting. That I mean, I always remind people, and I actually said this to Jonathan at one. So someone told me that the one country actually which economic sanctions worked very effectively uh, against was actually Britain during the Suez Crisis. I mean, you know. So I, I mean, economic sanctions have tended to be a fairly clumsy tool of foreign policy. Actually, I mean, it hasn't worked as well. I mean. And you know, different types of sanctions might work, like the sporting boycott in South Africa, for instance, which are much more symbolic and, and and affect the way people think. But economic sanctions can be adapted to in a way that particularly if they're there long enough and people will adapt to them. But again, I think the question of Russia, and certainly China as well, has been this belief that include them, integrate them, bring them close, hug them close, and they will eventually begin to mirror us and look like us and whatever and share the same values. It's just not, you know, what what people didn't realise is that the ties that bind affect us too.
0: Ali, so I totally get what you're saying about that, that the flaws in that paradigm. And I think the other the other person I would cite in that is is Tony Blair most most clearly in his Chicago speech, where he's basically right. liberal democracies yeah, yeah, if everyone's a liberal democracy, everyone will be happy, and yeah. of, you know, sorry, that's a massive simplification. But but the flip side of that is also a kind of unhelpful paradigm, and this is why we end up in these again these paralyzing debates about whether whether you need to escalate to de-escalate or whatever. Because the flip side to hugging them and keeping them close is that you essentially don't, and then you uh, you know you end up with barriers in whatever form between states on one side who see themselves as allies and states on the other side who are different and i'm not talking about sort of hard barriers but whatever you know whether they're trade barriers whatever they are if if you're not keeping your enemy close then your enemy is further away and that's that's the debate that we're having at the moment about which, what is the best method of engaging i suppose What I'm getting at is whether there is a time before the paradigms. So, whether in the 19th century, Mm. when we were all trying to navigate these complex state-state relations and, um, you know, sort of national interest questions, were we less scientific or mathematic in the theories? I'm asking you now because you're the professional historian, Mm. not me. So, I was at this thing last week at King's College, London Centre for Grand Strategy, and we talked a lot about pragmatism hmm. and and pragmatism being the kind of theory that threads through all of British foreign policy um, or one of one of them, jamie garsgarth was he had a list, which was very good, and pragmatism was one of them. and then I was reflecting on that, and I thought, well, we always try to be pragmatic, but it doesn't necessarily mean. That if you apply pragmatism, there's a right answer. Because what you can easily have is a debate between multiple different voices mm. about what's the pragmatic solution. So in order to get this, what is what will be the pragmatic foreign policy choice? And you can have multiple different options, even to that question. So I suppose, Ali, coming back to it, were we more or less theory-orientated in earlier generations. Is it us who are particularly obsessed with this?
1: Well, I mean, again, you know, people will quibble on the question of what we consider to be theory. So, I mean, in the 19th century, there were particular ideas of the way in which, you know, the concept of Europe should operate, you know, uh, the division between I think what we'd be more accurately described as republics rather than democracies, because democracy wasn't really in in favor in those days and the autocracies. And so there were sort of divisions of of how the world should operate. But there was, I think, you know, the difference is, and I'll use this very particular word, it's... It's the sort of scientificality, as someone calls it, of, of modern theory, which is problematic, I think. It's the the attempt to apply the natural sciences to the social sciences and to history in a way, which makes it problematic because it fails to incorporate the incongruities of human behavior. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. And that's where the historian, I think, plays a role. And I think if you look at 19th century statescraft, it did, I mean, you know, let's face it, Nineteen fourteen is a monumental failure, right? So I mean, we're not saying they were staggeringly brilliant. On the other hand, there was, I think, you know, a period of, you know, relative peace uh, for a hundred years or so in, in in Europe. And I mean, of course, less historians will pick holes in that. Of course, I'm going but, to pick but, holes in that. I mean, there <laughs> were quite a lot of wars. There um, were quite so, a lot so. of wars, but there wasn't there wasn't a European <laughs> war. I mean, there wasn't a sort of a, mm. a, a global war. And that, you're absolutely right. But my point is, is that the system was, in a sense, managed, probably a little bit. Uh, uh, in a fairly constructive way, but not not one that was far from perfect. But I think in terms of the way in which we thought about the world, certainly we don't have the sense sometimes of these these overarching paradigms that shape narrative and and also shape narratives for such a you know for such a long period of our our sort of policymaking life, if I can put it that way. um often, you know, paradigms that actually focus on very short horizons. I think, I will say this, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll stick my neck out of this, and I'll say that I think in the 19th century, people probably had a much better idea of strategic thinking than we have today. I mean, I think today we don't have, we have lost some of that capacity for longer term thinking that perhaps they had in the 19th century. Now, you know, people can, again, argue with that, but I'll, I'll put that out there that I think people had a much better sense of the longer term than perhaps we have today, where we're fixated on much sort of shorter-term horizons. Again, you know, it's like I say, with the whole concept of authoritarian resilience, it's not authoritarian permanence. We're not talking about authoritarian permanence, but also we're not talking about a sort of predictive model. It doesn't actually tell us yeah. the direction of travel of where some of these states are going. And I think fundamentally, you know, the concept of authoritarian resilience does not contradict also the notion of the, the real volatile contingency of the whole environment. I mean, I thought your point about Pakistan was very interesting, this notion of permanent instability and how people manage that. I think there's two sides of the coin there. I think in many ways that would apply to Iran, that they, uh, they enjoy the chaos, you know, in a sense. It's a, it's a sort of a different way in which we would order our lives. It's, it's, the, the, the instability is just a fact of life. But it's also true that if you look historically, that the instability does not help.
0: It's a stressful place to it, live. It
1: is, yes, and and actually, you hear that from people who travel, you know, between mm. the two countries. I mean, you know, they so, say, you know, we come to the West because it's so much more relaxing. And I mean, well, you wouldn't think so, but uh, you know, certainly compared to what you might get in Pakistan or Iran and other countries. Let's not limit it to those two. But you know, it is also this fact that history has shown us that you know regimes, governments, political systems, and others actually change, you know, there's a sort of a degree of uh, volatility that does persist because they lack a sort of an institutional basis for political action. The institutional basis that in a sense tries to contain, you know, some of the volatility of human behavior, if I can put it that way. Um... Again, I'm throwing these out. I mean, yeah. I'm throwing these out, and I'm not I, – I, what I will say to you, Suzanne, is I, I am definitely not trying to be – I'm not making a definitive case, by the way. I mean, it's part of a debate, isn't it, really? It's to prompt
0: conversation, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I was thinking a bit more about Russia, and a couple of years ago now, I was in Poland, and I met some Russian oppositionists who were based in Poland and in the Baltic States as well. And I said, you know, how is it <laughs> – how is it going what is your you know what is your plan and they said we know that we can't have a plan because we know that whatever happens will happen as a as a consequence of a set of circumstances that we cannot we can't set up it's like i'm going to use a footballing analogy which is pointless but it's like you having your set piece thing and and you're going to kick it to him and he's going to kick it to him and then they're going to score a goal and then you forget that the opponents have also got a team on the yes pitch. and it's, yes. so he said we haven't you know there's no point having an outline of what we're going to do what we have to do is put ourselves in the position that we have as many possible opportunities and that when the opportunities come we take advantage of them and it made me think very much of john reed's book 10 days that shook the world John Reed mm. was the American Marxist who was a reporter in Petrograd in 1917 and had witnessed firsthand the events that led up to the Bolshevik revolution on the 7th of November it was the first history that got written down and as AJP Taylor said in his introduction you know the the participants were too busy to write down their experiences at the time and the victors were too busy afterwards And so Reed's account has become one of the defining accounts because he wrote it contemporaneously. Uh, It was published a couple of years later. And, And that doesn't mean that it's accurate, but it is one of the only accounts that was written at the time. And what you see is that nothing happened according to anybody's plan. The whole thing was a series of miscalculations and uncertainties. It started in March 1917 when you had food riots The Tsar abdicated, you've got Kerensky's provisional government and then a massive falling out amongst all the Bolsheviks who are saying, well, uh, Lenin, Lenin was in Switzerland, Lenin went back and said, we need to have a second revolution, Kerensky clamped down on it, Lenin ended up in Finland. You know, I mean, it's sort of just chaos, and then in and they come back in October, and Lenin's going, "We need to have a revolution," and and everyone is saying, "No, we don't. No, we don't. It's not time." And 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 exactly then how that panned out is fascinating. To sort of to just read the the level of uncertainty, and this is actually this often happens that when the moment of change comes, it's quick and quiet and surprising. So the seventh of November, nineteen seventeen was not an uprising of the masses. It was a conflict between two small groups, Kerensky's cadets and the mm. Bolshevik Red Guards, and the death toll was one sailor and four Red Guards. They, The Red Guards filtered into the Winter Palace through the kitchen entrance and took over the palace without a struggle. It makes you think a little bit, a little bit of what happened when the Taliban moved into Kabul in the summer of 2021, is that actually when it happens, it's a sudden thing. So the reason I'm saying all of that, Ali, is that that, you've heard me say this multiple times before, Mm. but that idea that a predictive model will give you a greater level of certainty about when that moment of change will happen is for the birds, I think. And the only way you're actually going to know when the moment of change is going to happen is if you're right there watching it.
1: I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I and this is the problem. Of course, it, it irritates scholars, doesn't it? Because, you know, what you're saying is they can't develop fancy predictive models, you know, because they don't work. And I think, you know, there is an advantage in having models because it helps shape our thought. The, the difficulty is when we become wedded to it. And this is the problem. So there's another, you know, wonderful quote that I picked up from John Waterbury, another uh, an, an American political thinker, he says, you know, there is a, the, when, when he's looking at ideas of authority and resilience, he says, there is a distinct risk that in seeing the outcome of regime persistence, observers incorrectly attribute it to a set of coherent tactics. In fact, luck and simple agility might be equally compelling factors. And, and that's true, isn't it? I mean, the fact is that someone's at the right place at the right time. They say the right thing. The reaction works. I mean, these things are very contingent. And I think, actually, if I was to have a theory quote okay okay drum roll it would prison me that you know that rather than a theory uh, i mean let's let's leave theory to one side for the time and just say an approach you know our approach should be exactly as you say that we need to understand the contingent nature of political change in this sense and that Every theory, quote or paradigm has a shelf life until the next experience tells us it doesn't work. And and one of the fascinating things, you know, I found over the recent um, uprisings in um, Iran is that when you looked at the leaked papers of some of the security officials in Iran that were coming out, they had a much better handle, actually, on the fact that things that were developing were new, and that. You know, there's no point fighting the last revolution or the last political mobilization or upheaval, because it ain't gonna happen that way. Things have changed. Modes of communication have changed. Social media is much more powerful. The education has changed. So what they were arguing actually was that we need to adapt ourselves, whether they will or not, as I mean, they're clearly they're not what they were almost arguing was that we need to think about what might happen next, not think about what happened in 2009, in 1979, or whatever. Interestingly, as I was saying to some colleagues here, they're ahead of the game compared to some of the analysts in in the West who are still fighting the revolution of 1979 and are basically saying, you know, where is the next Khomeini coming from? Well, you know, it may not happen that way. And I mean, one of the things I've tried to argue unsuccessfully as it happens, is to say that, you know, we've got to stop thinking about these political developments within these rather fixed and rigid paradigms that we've inherited that may not have any relevance. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, I mean, we need to think, and it is a much more difficult thing to do. And above all, it is hard work. And I mean, you know, of course, what the paradigm does Is it saves us from having to think about anything, doesn't it? I mean, it. it, uh, That's
0: my that's my absolute beef with everything. Is that is that we basically think increasingly that we can. We like patterns. We like you know that that's that's how we we've ended up with computers, I suppose, and we we just keep doing it. But I was reflecting, Ali, as well, what you were talking about. How useful is history for policy making? And I think the the distinction that could usefully be made, is between history which tells us what happened, which is useful up to a point it it's useful because you need to know what happened in order to engage, frankly, but more useful is history which tells us how what happened happened. What were the decision-making structures? What were the different factors? Because then people can say, not just this happened, but these are the means by which Decisions were taken which changed the outcome. These are the structures. It's it's understanding the the mechanics of an event is important in order to be able to inform understanding of mechanics of what might happen in the future. And I think people get stuck in a narrative without asking the well, how exactly? And what can we learn from the how? And when we failed to anticipate, why was it uh, that we, you know, the the lessons learned thing, but that's the bit of history that I find would possibly be most useful. And it doesn't happen as much.
1: I mean, it it is. And you're absolutely, and I think there are more historians actually writing books like that. I mean, our very own Mm -hmm. Brendan Sims, you Mm -hmm. know, and we we talked to um, uh, to him about, um, you know, the the book about Hitler's American gamble and this sort of thing. Um, I mean, Laurie Friedman does a lot of this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, there are other people who are doing what we would, might term this sort of applied history, I suppose, and in and, and this sense of, you know, looking at it from the ground up, how are decisions made on the basis of incomplete evidence, exactly. incomplete data, without the benefit of hindsight, which, of course, historians love, of course, because, you know, we can go back and say, well, this is how it happened. And, and we were daft for not seeing these things. Of course, there is, a, there is a value in that in saying, what did we not look at? What did we not see? But It doesn't help us understand the decision-making process at all. I mean, you can see that, you know, presumably now with the COVID inquiry as well. You know, people are going to be with the benefit of hindsight. We'll be jumping to all sorts of conclusions in in every country, by the way. I mean, you know, people will look at it. But it will, um, you know, the question is, is how did you face it as you were facing the crisis?
0: Okay, so let's conclude, Ali. Are you going to conclude?
1: So I thought that was a, thank you for that wonderful discussion, Suzanne. I mean, I I, the certain things I wanted to, to talk about obviously it's all very incomplete and there's lots more we could talk about and lots more we could discuss but uh, we don't want to tire out our listeners and um, hopefully we might get back to some of these themes well i'm sure we will actually at a, at a later date
0: thank you ellie that's been really interesting for me and i hope our listeners enjoyed at least opening some of this pandora's box that's goodbye from me and from me